This Washington Post Live podcast is in partnership with the Showtime documentary series UFO, a four-part exploration venturing closer to the truth of the world's most mysterious phenomenon. All episodes of UFO are now streaming only on Showtime. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. UFO is a new four-part Showtime docuseries exploring the phenomenon of unidentified flying objects. Mark Monroe, one of the series' directors, and Greg Egegan, one of the experts featured in the series, sits down with The Post to talk about the show. Let's listen. Good afternoon and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Frances Deed-Sellers, a senior writer here at The Post. This afternoon, we're going to be talking about a new Showtime docuseries, UFO, with director Mark Monroe, and a professor of history and an expert interviewed in the series, Greg Egegian. A very warm welcome to you both. Hi, delighted to be here. here. Thank you for joining us. Mark, if I may start with you, you've done, uh, you've produced movies on the Beatles, the Bee Gees, Pavarotti, Before the Flood with Leonardo DiCaprio. So why UFOs? Well, um... This project really came about uh, through Bad Robot, my partners, uh, and uh, Showtime. Um, uh, a great producer, uh, Glenn Zipper with Zipper Brothers, um, they got together and talked about how much this topic has come to infuse and dominate a lot of our talk in the culture. Um, and so they had an idea to to really dive into this article um, that came out in 2017, um, a story that was covered by the Washington Post and the New York Times, Politico, and a lot of really um, institutions in terms of uh, um, credibility and and, and the way news is reported. And suddenly you're seeing UFOs in these these publications. Um, And so they really wanted to examine why and what is happening here in our culture to uh, to, to bring UFOs to the fore. So um, I'm always attracted to stories that have mystery, whether it's uh, a music doc or an environmental piece, and characters who are committed. And uh, in the UFO topic, that's what you find. Uh, commitment, obsession, uh, and a mystery that, that doesn't seem to ever go away. Greg, I watched episode four earlier this week and and talk about somebody committed. You were interested from your early years in this phenomenon, but could you talk to me now a little bit as a historian about the interest uh, you had developing the background of this history and why it's important, you believe, to see this in a historical context? Yeah, sure. Oh, like so many people who've who've gotten interested in UFOs over the years, my interests really sprouted in my youth. I was fascinated with UFOs. I could not stop reading books about UFOs and people who said they'd been contacted by aliens or had been kidnapped by aliens. I was always quite mesmerized by the subject matter for a lot of the reasons that Mark just outlined. Um, and But I will say that other interests uh, occupied my time and energies over the years. And uh, but but several years ago, I became really uh, struck by um, uh, this topic again, and I started diving into it a little more, and I started to realize something I, I thought was really quite shocking, and that was to find out that no academic historian had ever written a book on the subject of UFOs since 1975. 
And so that made me think there's something to this, right? There's something to actually look into this. So, so what I think that, that is interesting about UFOs from a historical standpoint, right, is that what we historians bring to any topic is an interest in understanding how things became the way they are. Why are they looking like and playing out in the way they're playing out. And it strikes me that one of the things you come to realize very quickly about UFOs is first of all, UFOs haven't just made news. There have always been people, boosters, champions who've helped make them make news. The second thing that you start to realize is, and related to this is that UFOs don't just appear and maybe more importantly disappear you have always had people in groups who've been very interested in making sense of and interpreting those appearances and disappearances. And so from my standpoint as a historian, that over time what we see is you really can't divorce the speculation about UFOs from the sightings, from the reports about UFOs. Well, that really brings me to a question again uh, for you, Mark, about bringing credibility to this investigation in your movie making. How did you go about that? How do you do the sort of storytelling that's also an investigation? Well, really, it's going to um, the, the source. Um, uh, I think a, a main feature or focus of this docu-series really is to dive behind the, the headlines and to look deeply at that one article. Uh, really, you know, prior to two, 2017, um, there was not a lot of recent credibility in terms of UFOs, uh, largely because the government uh, had stopped um, looking at them and they were, it was left to the private sector uh, and, and you know, smaller UFO organizations, people, ufologists they call them, or um, um, people who had witnessed things going to um, conventions. Um, that's really where the, the story was living in, in the National Enquirer, right? In, in tabloid style magazines. So when the New York Times reports that the government actually has been looking at UFOs, they just haven't been telling us about it. That suddenly changes the story dynamic completely. Uh, and so we went uh, immediately uh, to uh, the people who wrote the article, uh, as well as um, kind of trying to get to the stories uh, behind the article. Uh, where it came from, why the story is being reported now. Um, and I think that's, uh, you know, where where we found characters that, as Greg suggests, uh, you know, are, are carrying the torch here to, to try to get the public to look, advocating in a sense uh, to try to make the, the storyline credible. And after all, if the government thinks it's worth looking into, maybe we should be as well. One of the very compelling characters in episode four is this Harvard psychiatrist, John Mack. And Greg, maybe you can talk to us about the conclusions he re reached and actually how he reached those conclusions about uh, whether people were truly witnessing uh, these close encounters. Right. So John Mack was a quite renowned, quite well-respected psychiatrist at Harvard University, professor of psychiatry. Um, he actually came to the subject fairly late, um, relatively speaking, in the sense that um, uh, he hadn't, from my understanding, had any kind of particular interest in UFOs or stories about people contacting or meeting aliens. But at some point, um, around the early 90s, 
um, he had started to uh, reach out and talk to and, and engage with a, a number of people, uh, in particular the artist Bud Hopkins, who had been for some time, dating back to the early 80s, been chatting with people um, who had said that they had not only seen UFOs, but they had in fact had encounters with the occupants of these, of these vessels, and that these aliens, these extraterrestrials, were kidnapping them, were abducting them, right? And this is the 80s and the 90s are really the heyday of this phenomenon that we all associate with the, the term alien abduction. Um, John Mack got fascinated with this and started to meet some of the people who were making these claims and started to work with them. Um, he started to work with them professionally. They started to um, want to see him in order to work through what they felt as this very traumatic experience. Um, and over the course of talking with them, he became more and more convinced, as he said, uh, privately, but also publicly, he became more and more convinced that he couldn't just simply dismiss this all as confabulation, as, as the, the ravings of people who have either fevered imaginations or were mentally ill. Um, he never quite got around to the point of just full-throatedly saying, I think these people must be believed that you're having actual physical experiences with aliens, though he, he at times goes in that direction. But what he wanted to make an argument for was this idea that, that they were having an experience that he considered to be genuine, that something really was going on here, that it was something that defied standard scientific and medical explanation. And so he became a very vocal advocate for their perspectives throughout the 90s. And Mark, you choose to tell this story with sort of spooky lighting and great yawning libraries in the background and certainly a kind of ghost story atmosphere. Why? Well, there's two, there's, there's a couple reasons why I, I turned to Mac, which is uh, I think one of the, uh, you know, almost kind of reveals in terms of the series. We've, as a culture, been kind of obsessed with these things that are flying around in our airspaces, these very scientific uh, looking things. We see them on the radar footage. Uh, that, that's really what the story was about in 2017. Um, and, and what I find uh, fascinating about Mac is it, it really, that challenges your notion of belief. It's one thing to think um, you know, there's something in the sky and I can't explain it. I don't know what it is. And it's another to take a, a kind of a, a larger step towards these stories of encounters, right? Of actual physical encounters in which um, uh, the people John Mack talked to, you know, one of the defining characteristics of them was that they were eminently normal. Uh, they they were, were not looking for publicity. They were not running to the National Enquirer to tell their story. Um, and so I found that fascinating. The other thing about Mac, um, which I do think uh, has a haunting kind of aspect to it, is he's remotely kind of connected to this 2017 story. Ralph Blumenthal, one of the authors of the 2017 story, prior to writing, many years earlier in the, in the 90s, uh, early 2000s, I think, he had stumbled across a book by John Mack and was so taken by it as an investigative journalist, he thought this guy would make a great story. So he started to reach out to, to find him and he died suddenly before he could get to him. And he died in a, in a you know, somewhat strange manner, at least um, he was run down in, in London. And, and by all accounts, he just looked the wrong way. You know, the, the traffic's going the opposite direction. He's an American 
man, uh, and he simply looked the wrong way. But much was made of the fact that he was suddenly uh, taken uh, in the midst of all of this talk about UFOs and abductions. And I found that fascinating. And Ralph obviously did because he went on many years later to write the definitive book on John Mack. So here, here's a, a guy, an investigative journalist that uh, uh, you know is connected to both stories. And the third thing I love about the Mack story is much like the New York Times, when a Harvard psychiatrist says we should look at this, it, it adds instant credibility. It's like the whole thing happened again in 2017 when the Post and the Times and Politico and these other organizations picked up this story, that's what happened with Mac. You know, prior to that, it was all about alien autopsies and Fox News Channel kind of crazy stories in the National Enquirer. Uh, and, and Mac made the academic world, you know, sit up and go, what's going on here? Uh, and so I loved that uh, that aspect of credibility uh, uh, being, being hmm. kind of put onto this subject. So there's no doubt about the interest in this topic. We've had a huge number of, of reader questions and I'd love to ask you each one of them. I think they're gonna come up on the screen, but the first one I have is uh, for you, Greg, and it's um, from Taylor Messenger in the Virgin Islands. And the question is, do you feel that UFO law in cinema detracts from the reality of the subject? Does it make it easier or harder for serious discussions to occur? Yeah, that's a that is a great question because again, you know, as I had said before about speculation, um, uh, film, literature, they've played an enormous role in how we have come to conceive of of aliens, of extraterrestrial worlds, of spaceships, and things like that. Um, there's no question that in many ways it's muddied the waters, <laughs> and it becomes very difficult to tease out what represents science fiction, what represents science fact, particularly in this, this murky world, right? Where all we ever get, we seemingly get, are stories from people who um, see, that are very compelling, but don't provide us with uh, uh, maybe enough information or enough, uh, uh, enough, enough uh, phot photographic uh, evidence or anything like that to confirm what they're saying, or we have vague grainy images. So it's very easy for these other kinds of sources, these other things like um, uh, film, to sort of become our kind of default setting. Uh, we could turn to them for sort of the, an easy answer to maybe imagining certain things. The other thing is, is I, I do think what's historically interesting in this regard, and that, which is why I think it's such a, a, a good question to sort of think about, is if you take a look at something like the 1950s, for instance, 1950s films about aliens, right, were overwhelmingly, with very few exceptions, were overwhelmingly about alien invasions, aliens coming to take over, aliens are, are, are these horrible beings who want to conquer the world, right? Um, but what, what's, what's interesting is that in reality, at the time, most of the people who were claiming in the 1950s that they were having encounters were with aliens were in fact telling a very, very different story. Their story was about very benevolent aliens who were very kind and gentle, were here to help us sort of extricate ourselves from the, the, the menace of the Cold War and, and nuclear holocaust. And so, and so what's interesting is there's this kind of at times disconnect between things like cinema and things like the realities on the ground. 
So I'd like to turn to a question uh, for you, Mark, and this one comes from Ryan Sprague in New York, I believe. The question is, what was the most revelatory moment in filming the series that made you question what you knew about UFOs? Wow. <clears throat> um, Big one. I think probably uh, the, the stories from uh, hearing personal stories um, about this topic is really affecting to me. Uh, so it's one thing, I guess, to see the radar images of the what they call the TikTok um, um, crafts, the TikTok uh, videos, these small, smallish objects uh, that are that are caught by, uh, you know, military uh, cameras, Navy uh, airship cameras, and radar on on, on ships. Um, but hearing firsthand from you know Kevin Day, hearing the story, how it affected his life, and and just thinking. Here's a guy who had gone through the military, had had um, been trained, and and was at the top of his class clearly to be in the position he was in, um, to see things uh, on radar, to interpret radar, to 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 use his um, training to determine what is going on, and he was um, emotionally um, changed by the incident, and and you know. I wish I could tell you, oh, I discovered uh, through doing this that, uh, you know, that a piece of a craft exists in this building or that, and they're doing these things, whatever. That's not possible to know, really, from our position. It's really hard. But s seeing someone um, who seemed to be on one life path trajectory and that be changed by this event, that's revelatory to me. And I think you see that again and again. And that's why people, you know, I don't think anyone sets out to be a UFO journalist or a UFO ufologist, uh, um, they, something happens to them, right? And it, it becomes something that takes over their lives. They can't not do it or not follow it. It's not possible for them. And I think uh, that's what's revelatory for me. So let me follow up with another question. The government in late June re released this report. Um, Mark, what's your thinking about what the government knows and what we're not being told? Well, um, Certainly, I, I would think we're not being told a lot. If if all that has happened uh, uh, over the course of uh, you know even this last uh, stretch of time in which the government says that they were uh, investigating and looking into these instances, incidences, and all we get are nine pages uh, of uh, you know, incredibly inconclusive material, <laughs> I, I would think that there's more to be known. So uh, in a way, it felt like they were kind of kicking the can down the road. And I think that's kind of what you see happen again and again. Um, so, you know, I do think, though, we're in a new, in a new world uh, in the sense that with the government saying we have been paying attention to this, uh, you also have elected officials saying we should be paying attention to this. And I think when you have more incidents, if another incident happens in the future that's um, captured with better uh, quality cameras or um, interrupts some sort of defensive exercise, I think you're going to have more attention to it and more demand to find out what is known, what what is being hidden from view, right? So. It's baby steps, you know, it's it's hard to move forward on that front. Greg, it was only a nine page report. Just briefly, was it anticlimactic or a game changer? Um, I don't see it as a game changer per se. I think it um, 
does add a few more things to uh, to the sort of the discussion. I think the admission that these are the vast majority of sightings were in fact real objects, and I think the admission that that perhaps the military has a bit of a problem on its hands in terms of a kind of culture of ridicule surrounding discussing the subject within at least uh, military and intelligence circles. I think those were actually fairly important admissions from my standpoint, from a historical standpoint. But I do think that we are still, as, as, as Mark said, the can got kicked down the road. We're still living in a sort of atmosphere of ambiguity. Um, so everything's still on the table. And um, I think all it means now is there's going to be more wait and see and more and more people are going to sort of have to chime in. So let's see a short clip from the show in which we'll hear from you, Greg, and also see a reporter and one of the experts from the series. The thing about the UFO phenomenon is it's just not a phenomenon. It, it has always been shrouded in mystery. There are people who view this stuff as a puzzle that can be solved. We just need to put the pieces together. And then there are people who see these as mysteries, and mysteries are never solved. So, so just to follow up on that, uh, Greg, are these mysteries that can be solved? I think a great deal of it in, uh, are, will involve mysteries that will simply be perpetual, that there are large questions. And I mean, this is also the nature of this phenomenon, right? I mean. I mean, UFOs, that term, that very vague, <laughs> impenetrable term that seems to mean nothing and everything, right? It, it refers to really black boxes, things that, as I said, we never get a good glance at, we never quite understand, is it an it, is it a they, is it something, right? It, it, it's always been and I think will be shrouded in um, deep, deep ideas and, and notions of mystery. And therefore, people will impart to it a significance that oftentimes goes far, much farther than just sort of material culture and, and material questions. That said, there are, in fact, and there will be cases and instances and have been where what we have on our plate is really something that needs to be investigated, that simply needs, we need to get to the bottom of it. And you can largely get to the bottom of it, right? So I think that what, what the reality that we have to live with and, and that UFOs have in a sense shown us is the need to in fact live in a world where there is ambiguity and ambivalences. And that can be, I think, troubling for some people. So Mark, do you have any explanation or hunch for why so many Americans report sightings more than any other uh, nation in the world, I think? I don't. Uh, I'm going to lay it on the line and say I don't have an explanation for that. I think uh, maybe uh, our curiosity uh, uh, is, is uh, about this particular topic is at, uh, is at a higher level than maybe a lot of other places. Uh, I think that might be one reason. Um, but, you know, I, I would like to add to what Greg said uh, uh, earlier about the ridicule. I hope that uh, even though the, the can has been kicked down the road, I think one thing the government report and the government's admission that they have been looking into this and that this is something that needs to be looked into uh, will prevent some of the ridicule of the past. Imagine if 
this was not a laughing matter for all these years. Maybe we know more now. Maybe more people would uh, who have seen things or had things happen to them would step up. Maybe our military, you know, we still have um, people in the military who have seen things, strange things, who have not gone on the record. We, we know this uh, because they're afraid of the repercussions. So uh, what I hope, um, you know, happens in the wake of the government's admission, as well as uh, I certainly hope this, this, this series uh, helps uh, is is maybe stop or slow down on the on the ridicule. Yes, a lot of it is bunk. Uh, we have people in our in our film say, you know, 95% of this stuff can probably be easily explained. But but there is a percentage, a small percentage. It's really hard to explain. And I think laughing at it is not uh, maybe helping. So Greg, you're a historian, but look ahead for me. Um, what's next? Is it time for the US and Russia and China and maybe the UK to get together and say, we're not responsible for all these strange flying objects? Um, we should be investigating together. Well, I think we're starting to see the first indications of something that I do think are, from my perspective, really, really positive. And that is the beginnings of civilian scientific um, concerted efforts and investigations of the phenomenon. So we've just heard recently about this new project coming out of Harvard, the Galileo Project, that among other things is a, is a search for extraterrestrial intelligence um, beyond our solar system project. But, but it also will involve supposedly at least an effort aimed at trying to get to the bottom of certain kinds of um, unidentified aerial phenomenon within Earth's atmosphere, or at least orb and, and at least orbiting Earth. Um, I what I what I've heard from um, scientific colleagues from uh, of mine uh, who are who believe that the subject do, uh, warrants a. a uh, more serious attention on the part of academia, what they've been looking for is an opportunity for um, scientists, for academicians to get involved in this in a way that um, won't rely on the military. And I think the reason for that is uh, are, are things that Mark alluded to earlier. The military, for I think some very good reasons, and the intelligence community for very good reasons, can be quite secretive, right, about the data and the information they have. So I think now that we are at the next step where I think we're beginning to see some movement with regard to now opening up the investigation of this phenomenon in a way, um, scientifically, academically, with all the rigor that comes with that. And I think that's a positive thing. So, so Mark, Bill Nelson, the NASA administration, said not very long ago that, that we should be communicating. I think we're listening as we've been talking about. Is that your belief? Should we be reaching out to potential intelligent life beyond our own solar system? Well, I mean, that's one of the things we've done in the past, right? Send, uh, send uh, satellites send in, into uh, space with uh, emitting sounds and, and, and hoping that someone hears on the other side. That, you know, I, I think um, that the, the notion that we're alone seems, uh, from where I sit, quite silly. I mean, you, you look at how vast uh, our universe is, and, and you wonder how can we not uh, have be sharing it in some way, shape, or form. So, um, it, you know, I, I think we stay the course. I think, you know, 
if you think 100 years ago, we, we just you know learned how to fly a plane and now we're remotely flying planes on Mars or, or helicopters on Mars, we got to keep going. We got to keep trying to answer these big questions about, you know, are we are we here alone or are we not? What what, what is what is the meaning? Why? Why are we here? It's all wrapped up in this topic. So we have this very growing uh, notion that we're probably not alone. At the same time, and maybe we can finish with you, Greg, we have very little time left. If the pandemic has taught us anything, it's that people are willing to believe in conspiracy theories and dismiss science. Has that realization changed your thinking at all in the past year and a half about how to understand people's belief systems and what to make of UFOs? Um, I, in some ways, I think it has. I mean, I think there's no question that the whole UFO topic has, over the decades, found itself enmeshed in conspiracy theories and all sorts of rather spurious ideas about, about nefarious parties, both on Earth and outside of Earth. Um, 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 working their machinations to try to undermine our way of life. Um, and uh, that has always played that a role within the UFO world. But it's also very clear that many, many people, I'd, I'd go so far as to say maybe in the vast majority of people who I've come to know involved in the UFO world are not of that ilk. They do not view the world that way. And they actually have great respect for science and medicine. Um, so I think there is a lot of space and a lot of room here in this world and in this uh, when discussing this topic to, in fact, get grounded very firmly in science and medicine, while also simultaneously asking what I think need to be tough questions about scientific authority and medical authority. Greg Iggyan and Mark Van Roe, thank you so much for joining me. It was a fascinating discussion. Pleasure. Thanks very much. Thank you so much for having us. I'm sorry we didn't have time for more. If you would like to see more of upcoming programming on Washington Post Live, please go to WashingtonPostLive.com. As always, I'm Francis Deed Sellers. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.